In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, I mean, today is the 30th day of the blessed month of Kiak. It's the second day after the blessed feast of the Holy Nativity. And uh, as we just read from the prologue of the Gospel of St. John, those beautiful introductory verses about the, the Word of God who was from the beginning and by whom all things were created. And this is a very lofty and sublime um, writing of St. John, and many of the fathers spent thousands and thousands of pages meditating just on this opening part of the chapter, first chapter of St. John's Gospel, which again is called the prologue of the Gospel of St. John. I just want to focus on uh, the last part of the reading. Um, the Word became flesh, but St. John says he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So God became man, and he came to his own people, his own creation, his own household, and many did not receive him. But to those who did receive him and believed in him, he gave them the right to be children of God. And this childhood of God, this adoption, is not of blood, it's not of the will of man, but it comes from above. So this is the great introduction St. John begins his gospel with, the purpose of the incarnation, the purpose of our human vocation is to realize that we have become children of God. And we can look at the, the meaning and purpose of our lives between what it means to be and what it means to do. Because often we, we tend to focus on the latter. What do we do in our lives? What should be my vocation? Should I be married? Should I be unmarried? Should I choose this profession or that profession? Should I have children? Should I have how many children? Should I work in this field? And we lose sight of what it means to be. And the fundamental vocation, the fundamental calling of every Christian is first of all to be. To be a child of God, which is a gift from God, and to grow into this gift and realize it more and more in our lives. So we are in a constant journey of becoming what we're called to be. We're in a constant journey of realizing our ultimate vocation of being children of God. So we could say then, that what is the to-do part? Is it unrelated? Should I just do anything as long as I'm a child of God? In fact, the two are very much related. The to-do part means that we share in the redemption of Christ, in his work of redemption, which he brought to the world. And this might seem like sort of just theological speech, like, what does it mean for me to share in the redemption of Christ? How could we even say such a thing? And maybe that could be said of the, uh, the preachers, the evangelists, the apostles, the martyrs, the great fathers of the church. Perhaps somehow they were able to participate in bringing the redemption of Christ to the world. But how does a mother of four children or somebody who works for the city of Orange, who has no service in the church, formal service in the church, how can that person possibly share 
and the redemption of Christ. And this is sort of what I want us to, for us to reflect on a little bit together this morning. So in the epistle to the Romans, St. Paul clarifies this idea of adoption or childhood. He says, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Right? So he's repeating what St. John's prologue mentioned. We have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, that means the inheritance of the son is our inheritance, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But then he sort of throws a a little bit of a bomb at the end there. And he says, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. So St. Paul qualifies the adoption of us as children of God with the to-do part. He tells us what it is that we do in our lives, provided we suffer with him, that we might also be glorified with him. So to answer the question then, how do I share in the manifestation of the redemption of Christ in the world? St. Paul says, suffer with him. Okay, what does that mean? How do we do that? How is any of my suffering related to the redemption that is brought in Africa or in Asia or even in my, to my next-door neighbor? Again, think about what St. Paul is saying. He's saying, if we, if we were to ask the question, did Christ, how did Christ suffer? We say Christ suffered for us, right? Christ suffered for us. But when we talk about our suffering, we say we suffer with Christ. He suffered for us. We suffer with him. What's the distinction? Well, in fact, of course, if we suffer with him, then he's also suffering with us too. But the the initial distinction is important because Christ suffered for us as the head of the body. We suffer with him as members of his body, right? How, what, was the, what was the vehicle of God's salvation? What was the, the means by which he saved us? It was his body, his flesh. He took a body, he took a humanity so that he could be crucified, so that he could spill the blood of his humanity, his holy humanity, and redeem the world. And what is this body? Well, the body is the the body that was seen and touched, that that walked among men, but there is a mystical body. There is the body in which you and I, St. Paul says, we were baptized into this body, and we were raised with this body, and baptized into his death, and raised with him in his resurrection. So the the very vehicle of God's salvation for the world, the very means by which he saved the world, includes you, includes me, as members of that body that was crucified. We're starting to get into very lofty things here, but it's important for us to realize, unless we we capture this, we don't understand the real meaning of what it means to do in our lives. Whatever it is that we do from a secular standpoint, we don't understand what the inner work 
uh, that we're doing in our life is having an impact on the ultimate purpose of God for the world before his second coming. So, St. Paul says in Philippians, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. That I might not just know him as risen, as powerful, as forgiving, as merciful, but that I might know him through the fellowship I have with him in his sufferings. Again, I suffer with him. He suffers for me, I suffer with him. And St. Paul, again, says, without understanding this, we are illegitimate children. You know, an illegitimate child doesn't have the inheritance. He's not a real child. He doesn't have all the rights. So St. Paul says in Hebrews, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, then you are illegitimate and not sons. It's like a punch in the face, he says to us. If you don't accept your calling to suffer with Christ, if you don't have fellowship with him in his sufferings, if you aren't conformed to his death, then what St. John said about receiving the gift of sonship, that sonship is illegitimate. It's a very intense thing that he's saying. So, again then, I'm trying to build up to this idea of how do we suffer with Christ. St. Paul, again, is sort of an out, in a comment that might even seem outrageous. He says, I now rejoice in my sufferings. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. St. Paul just said, we just heard him say, that he is filling up in his own flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. He just said, that St. Paul just said, that he is making up within his own sufferings something that's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. I think if we step back and hear this, we'd say, heresy. Who could, who, could, who could say that there's something lacking in the afflictions of Christ? But St. Paul, perhaps better than anyone, understood the mystery of Christian life. He understood that he is there in the mystical body. He is there in the body of Christ, which was crucified. He's there in the body of Christ, which is on the altar in the Eucharist. And therefore, he must play his part. He must have fellowship with the sufferings of Christ in order that the grace of redemption would spread to the world, would reach everyone. I'll give you an example. The centurion that was standing at the foot of the cross, Roman soldier, like other Roman soldiers that were there, they did their job, they scourged him, they mocked him, they spat on him, they punched him, they drove the nails into his hands and feet, they lifted him up on the cross. And then, one of the centurion cries out and says, truly this was the Son of God. How do you go from crucifying a man that you believe to be a criminal to identifying him as the Son of God? Because, like St. Paul, 
Christ could say from the cross, now I rejoice in my sufferings for the sake of the church. Christ on the cross was not like other men who cursed his birth, who cursed his mother who gave birth to him, who cursed humanity, who cursed the soldiers who were crucifying him. He wasn't like any other man who was dying and screaming all sort of filthy uh, words against those who were mocking him and punishing him. But from the cross in the midst of his sufferings, he was saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He was saying to St. John, behold your mother, and to his mother saying, behold your son. So the, the centurion saw that in the midst of suffering, there was love. In the midst of suffering, there was kindness and gentleness. In the midst of suffering, there was power. There was grace. And he said, this is not like how other men suffer. This is not how other men die. Truly, this is the Son of God. So St. Paul understood, as did the apostles and, and the early Christians, that the fellowship that we have in Christ's sufferings means that we suffer with him in whatever suffering comes our way in our lives, but we do it by accepting it. We do it as much as we can by turning that suffering into joy because we are in fellowship with Christ in his suffering. We, we take that suffering and we, we accept it as having a salvific effect on the world. We take that suffering knowing that my suffering isn't just isolated for me. It doesn't just bring me into a loneliness and isolation, but my suffering actually united with the suffering of Christ is pouring down mercy and graces upon the whole world. And so in an effect, if we think about the early church, the early church was powerful. The gospel was spreading quickly. Miracles were happening. Signs and wonders were, 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 were manifold. And because the early Christians accepted suffering, as we see in the early martyrs, and so it's as if the clouds that were separating the redemptive grace of Christ from reaching all of the world, the veil was lifted and mercy and grace poured down so that people who were watching others being executed, martyrs, they said, just like the centurion, truly Jesus is the Son of God. I am now a Christian. It was immediate. They received a grace of conversion that was immediate. And I think that the reason why this happened so powerfully in the early church is because these, these, this great grace of God was poured out through the early Christians who understood how to live their life, doing whatever they were doing, farmers, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers. But they were joyful. They were patient. They were loving. They were kind in the midst of their trials, in the midst of their sufferings. They didn't take out their sufferings on other people. They didn't live like other people. They weren't like other men who died on the cross who cursed their birth and cursed the mother who bore them. So to suffer with Christ then means for us to share with him in his power to bring the gospel to the world without me stepping outside of my home, without me being a missionary in Africa or Asia or South America. 
So when St. Paul says, well, we are co-workers with God, sometimes we can dismiss that and say, St. Paul is talking about himself as an apostle. As an apostle, yeah, he's a co-worker of God, but not me, a farmer, a a school teacher. How am I a co-worker with God? But that's not what St. Paul is. He's saying we are all co-workers with God. Of course, God was strong enough, powerful enough to save the world without you and without me, but that's not what he chose. He chose to do it through his body, which is you, which is me. He chose that we have a participation in whether or not the world is saved. He chose that you and I would have a say and have an influence on whether or not the whole world is saved. So, We are co-workers with God. And so, as one author said, he says, I am a victim with the victim Christ, not because I think I am, not because I say I am, not because I feel that I am, not because I choose to be a victim, but because in him I am what I am. In him I am what I am. If he is a victim, and here the victim, of course, in modern usage is a very negative word. It means somebody who's trampled over and... No, but... The word victim is a sacrifice. In the Bible, the sacrifice was a victim. The lamb, the sheep, the goats, they were victims. And those victims were slaughtered on the altar. And their blood was poured out on the altar. And Christ was the sacrifice for the world, which means he was the victim. And therefore, you and I, whether we choose to or not, to be children of God, we are victims. Again, you you might not like how that sounds. I don't like how that sounds. But we are victims. Victims for sacrifice. Victims whose blood is to be poured out on the altar. So I want just to share a nice uh, vision that the Polish nun, Faustina, she had. It may sound a bit severe at first, but let's listen to it together and and see how this helps us understand this concept. So she was in the chapel, and uh, the nuns were doing something called the renewal of their vows. They were, um, every so many years, they renew the vows that they make as, as, as nuns. And the, and the nuns' life is a life of sacrifice. Sacrificing their life for prayer, for the world, and for practical sacrifices that they make for others. So she said, during the renewal of the vows, I saw the Lord Jesus on the on the the side where the the epistle is read, wearing a white garment with a golden belt and holding a terrible sword in his hand. This lasted until the moment when the sisters began to renew their vows. Then I saw a resplendence beyond compare, and in front of this brilliance, a white cloud in the shape of a scale. Then Jesus approached and put the sword on one side of the scale, and it fell heavily towards the ground until it was about to touch the ground. So there was a scale. The sword, sword which was in the hands of Jesus, was placed on one side of the scale, and the scale was about to touch the ground, which meant if it touched the ground, the sword would fulfill its purpose, which is to execute, to punish. Now this is just a vision. Don't take it literally. Okay? Then the sisters finished renewing their vows. So as she saw this and the scale was about to touch the ground, the sisters were finishing to renew their vows. Then I saw the angels take something from all of the sisters 
and put it in a golden vessel and put that golden vessel on the other side of the scale. And it immediately outweighed and raised up on the side on which the sword had been laid. Immediately it it weighed, outweighed and raised up on the side on which the sword had been laid. At that moment, a flame issued forth from, from the altar, and it reached all the way to the brilliance that she saw, this brilliance. Then she said, I heard a voice coming from the brilliance, put the sword back in its place, the sacrifice is greater. Put the sword back in its place, the sacrifice is greater. So what of course, in visions, it's mixed with metaphors and allegory and symbols and all of these things. So again, don't take it literally, but what is the message that, that Jesus was giving her? The sword is the justice. Of course, all of us, by virtue of being sinners, the, the right punishment for all of us is, is what happened to Adam and Eve, to be cast out eternally from paradise. But because... Your sacrifice and my sacrifice, your suffering and my suffering, are part of the sacrifice of Christ, and without our part, Christ will not fulfill his part. So the sacrifice of the nuns caused the sword to be put back in its place. Does that make sense? It's a beautiful image of how Christ sees the value of every sacrifice. Your sacrifice and my sacrifice and the sacrifice of these nuns hidden away in some small convent. All right. I know I took a lot of your time. One final thing. I mentioned before about the Vietnamese martyr uh, Marcel Vaughn, the young martyr who died in the uh, um, uh, North Vietnamese communist prison camps um, in, uh, in 1959 when he was only 31 years old. And in the past, I, I mentioned some of the beautiful stories about his life, but the important thing I want to mention in the, in the context of, of today's sermon is that Marcel, his whole life was suffering. From the time he was a child, he experienced beating, he experienced homelessness, he experienced rejection. He was a child whose whole life was characterized by tears. And even he had this great love for Christ and, and to enter a monastery, even they wouldn't accept him because they said, you're too weak, you're too sensitive, and physically you're too weak, and you don't have anything to offer the monastery. So even he was rejected, and for many years he was sort of living as a, as a worker in the monastery before they finally accepted him as a brother, but, but never even as a priest. So his whole life, which was very short, I mean, he died at 31 in a, in a, in a prison camp, but his whole life, even leading to becoming a brother in this monastery, was just, when you read his biography, you can't help but say, it's impossible for me to have gone through what this child has gone through and to still love God. Such was his fortitude, his courage, and his love for Christ that outweighed all of his suffering. But I just want to read this beautiful story that happened to him on Christmas, since we're celebrating Christmas. He was 12 years old. So a child who suffered up until the age of 12, he has this beautiful experience on Christmas Day. It happened during the Mass, the liturgy of Christmas. He says, the mysterious meaning of suffering escaped me. He didn't understand why he was suffering so much in his life. Why an innocent child is suffering so much? Why has God sent all this suffering to me? 
He says, the, the Mass, the liturgy started. In my heart, it was dark, it was cold. The moment of communion arrived. I embraced the Lord Jesus in my heart. And then immediately, he says, I am seized with an immense joy. Why do my sufferings seem so beautiful to me all of a sudden? Why do my sufferings seem so beautiful to me all of a sudden? In an instant, my soul was transformed. I was no longer afraid of suffering. God entrusted me that day with a mission, changing suffering into happiness, drawing its strength from love. My life now, my life now on will only be a fountain of happiness. And this grace was no illusion. It wasn't something that passed in the night and the next morning he woke up miserable. But his whole life now was characterized by what he called transforming suffering into happiness or changing sadness into joy. He would use both exp expressions, transforming suffering into happiness or transforming sadness into joy. And then he wrote this in a letter to his sister, and this is the, the end of my of my words this morning, he says, one preserves always in love, a strong love, which accepts with courage the sadness and the sufferings which will present themselves. So ask to prove to him that your love for him is an ardent love, a faithful love, which does not change according to whether it experiences sadness or joy. So his point is very simple. We love as we are loved. We love Christ, we love God as he loves us. And this love is not dependent on whether I'm sad or whether I'm happy, because I love him. And when my love no longer is dependent on whether today I'm happy or I'm sad, then I have learned the key to transform my love and to transform my, my suffering, based on, born from love, into a stream of happiness and contentment and joy. And then others will say, when they see us, truly, the Son of God dwells in this man. And then we will open the gates of heaven through our own meek, infantile, impotent lives. We will open the floodgates of grace to be poured out on the world. Christ is waiting for me and he's waiting for you to transform all of our trials, all of our difficulties, all of our crosses into love, which then makes them light and joyful so that his mystical body can help him bring grace to sinners and those who are unbelievers who need the grace of conversion and the grace of eternal life. And glory be to God forever. Amen.